uh, we connect with the Deputy Speaker of the BC Legislature, the Honourable Raj Chohan is on the line with us. Raj, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me, Judy. Good morning. Great to talk to you. I've got so much I want to unpack with you, and we have to start with reflection on what has to be an historic, almost bizarre summer sitting. How was that for you? <laughs> yes, that's true. It was a um, totally unique, historic uh, session that we had. You know, as we all know, that we are living in under such a different uh, uh, times. Um, it was all by Zoom, you know, like uh, some of us were there, many of them MLAs and staff were uh, working from their homes and offices outside of the legislative building. But I must say, uh, the head clerk, Kate Ryan Lloyd and her team, they did such a fantastic job. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they put everything together so well, and it was fine. It was really something to watch. It did bring a sort of a different, yeah. uh, I mean, typically British Columbians don't spend a whole lot of time watching perhaps mm -hmm. the, the ins and outs of, of the BC legislature. And this one did attract quite a bit of attention because we all were curious to see what it would look like. And, and there, were some, there were some funny moments. There were some tense moments. Obviously, there is a very stressful um, sort of cloud that sits over this, the reason for the need to be on Zoom and have the physical distance and all the precautions in place. But but certainly it feels like things continue to move forward, as you said, the, the head clerk and her team doing a, a, an impeccable job at, at trying to figure out under extraordinary circumstances how to make our government work at the ledge. Yeah, you know, as we all know, since uh, January, uh, uh, when the COVID-19 basically started here, uh, Minister of Health, uh, Adrian Dix, and uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, Premier, then they all were actively involved in doing something, anything, everything, uh, to make sure that we were all safe. But then there was also a need for us to continue with our legislative agenda. And in order to, you know, uh, to do that, we had to have uh, certain uh, steps taken in the legislative building, and uh, that required so much coordination between so many people, uh, the House leaders of all three parties uh, coordinated with each other, and it worked really well. But, you know, like initially, there was so much nervousness that we thought yeah. uh, there will be glitches, we, it may not work, but it worked out fine. We're with Raj Shohan, who is the BC legislator, Legislature Deputy Speaker, excuse me. And uh, I'm curious, did we learn anything? Will there be anything we do differently in the next sitting? And, and when you might expect that next sitting, will we have a fall sitting? Uh, yeah, the, there could be a fall session, uh, uh, which, is, uh, which could start in October. Uh, you know, like we have had 25 different pieces of leg, uh, legislation that they were taken care of. There may be a few other pieces of legislation that need to be concluded so the government uh, can decide uh, when and where the uh, session should be. And it could be in fall, uh, for sure. But what we have learned from this past session that, you know, we can do it. Uh, when you put your mind to do something, you can do it. And that's what happened. Everybody worked together. We learned so much from this uh, session, how the technology works, 
and what were the needs, what were the requirements, all that uh, put together, and it was fine. When you say everyone worked together, that was really something to watch as a as a political like. I'm- uh, watcher as a, as a political junkie, if you will, somebody who uh, always sort of tunes in to what's happening. The political theater and the the mm-hmm. pivot from constant sort of acrimony, the back and forth, the what what we're used to, the theater that is the legislature. Mm-hmm. There was sort of this bipartisan feeling uh, because of how much COVID nineteen has rocked the world and, and 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 on a global sense, but certainly here in British Columbia, the pull together of our government, specifically at the B.C. legislature, was something to witness. Did you feel that? Absolutely. You know, like it was uh, so nice to see that even the opposition parties, uh, you know, um, were very supportive of certain measures taken by the government. And so that worked out fine. And as a result, the British Columbians uh, were following that in a very positive way. They all uh, did their share uh, in order to, um, you know, stop this uh, infection. Although, as you and I have seen in the last week or so, some people are still not doing it. You know, we are now in a different situation. But politically, mm-hmm. yes, people work together. Uh, the six weeks of session that we have had, it was uh, fine. You know, in many ways, it, uh, you know, like question period is a question period. But yeah. outside of that, it was uh, very um, productive. Very productive and seeing people all pulling in the same direction and even in question period and when the, when the back and forth starts to heat up a little bit, it almost gives us a sense of calm that uh, yeah. there is some normalcy returning uh, to our political process. If you have time, can, can you stay with me for another segment? Yeah, sure. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith. Glad to have you along on this Wednesday. We're continuing our conversation with the Honorable Raj Chohan, who is the BC legislator, the legislature deputy speaker. Sorry, I haven't had enough coffee this morning, it would appear. Um, I want to talk to you about your uh, resume, about your history, in fact, and, and, and reading about you and learning about you. There is so much relevant experience in your background that is being... Uh, I don't know how to put it, sort of a light is being shone on our shortcomings and, and our issues with not uh, fixing some of these um, issues that we're dealing with. And certainly COVID-19 is shining a light on it. So can you walk us through a little bit? Um, you came in here to Canada in 1973, was it? Yeah, that's true. So you came in 73 and, and in reading about you, I see that that your first impact of Canada or your, your thoughts about Canada was the disparity between the rich and the poor it, with a particular light on immigrant workers and that inspired you. Can you speak a little bit yeah, on that? You know, it's um, when I arrived here, you know, uh, like anybody else, uh, you know, thought you know, Canada being one of the richest country and um, very progressive country when you, uh, uh, you know, land here and then you see uh, all that we read and heard was actually not true. There were some disparities, some uh, differences between different levels of income. People were not taken care of. Um, and I said, wow, you know, like, how could that be? And then the more I tried to learn about it, the more I found out that some segments of our society were left out, uh, namely uh, people like farm workers, uh, mm-hmm. immigrant workers who work in the fields, uh, you know, worked so hard, uh, but they had nothing to protect themselves, no health and safety regulations, 
no employment standards, no labor code uh, covered them. So it was really a shocking experience for me. However, over the years, then, you know, I work with different uh, employers and found out more and more about workers' rights, uh, human rights here. And then I, you know, uh, with the help of many other friends, decided to do something about it. So I started organizing farm workers. That was the first time in the history of Canada we were able to do uh, in 1979. <clears throat> started the Farm Workers Organizing Committee, and then the Canadian Farm Workers Union was formed in 1980. During that time, uh, I uh, got in touch with legendary uh, leader, Cesar Chavez. We became very good close friends. He really mentored me, and he knows I took so much inspiration from him. And so that's how I started my career in the labor movement. By being one of the original Canadian Farm Workers Union field organizers. And boy, yeah. do we ever have a glaring spotlight on how key our Canadian farm workers are when it comes to keeping our food supply chain uh, active. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, how, that's such a key role right now in contributing uh, to our well-being as a, as a country uh, as a whole. Yeah. You know, uh, I was the founding president of Canadian Farm Workers Union. As a result, I was able to uh, travel throughout Canada, meet with, uh, meeting with so many different people, different uh, faith groups, uh, labor unions, uh, employers to, uh, to raise awareness about that. As a result, we found out all these people in British Columbia and Ontario and Manitoba, they worked so hard, so long uh, to put in food on everybody else's table, but they didn't have enough to have food for their own family. You know, so that's what uh, was really uh, troublesome. So, you know, through our um, collective efforts here in British Columbia, we were able to bring farm workers under uh, employment standards, health and safety, but it didn't work out right away. You know, yeah. we had a number of strikes, so marches and all that. But when um, in 91, the NDP government came to power, those all those uh, things we were asking for, they were formalized. You know, they, they got that protection. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, as you're as you're speaking about your history and thinking about your time as well, you know, you mm-hmm. you, you move, you immigrate to Canada, you acknowledge this disparity, you work towards making it, it better and fixing it. And as you say, like farm workers who are putting food on the tables of Canadians without being able to afford it food on their own table, that just is, is so uh, glaringly heartbreaking when we think mm-hmm. of our our country in in one way of we're all here we're in it together we're taking care of one another's another and indeed yeah. uh, racism and human rights are an issue in Canada and have been and then there you are as the official opposition critic for labor and human rights and multi multiculturalism and immigration you you've really picked up uh, Raj mm-hmm. if I may you've really picked up some significant files and 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 championed them. Yeah, it was a long journey from the fields to the legislature, you know, but I enjoyed every bit of it. It's, um, uh, you know, like through that journey, I met with so many different people. You know, I was um, 
basically, I did lots of shows with people like Ray Mayer, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, on CKNW, uh, and all those uh, radio stations. And I must say that, you know, we got so much support from the progressive media, you know, individual reporters, uh, radio show hosts and all that, you know, to highlight uh, that uh, discrepancy, you know, that difference between different layers of uh, our society. But, you know, even though we achieved a lot, but it's not over, we need to do a lot more. In 1980, uh, also, uh, I'm one of the founding members of BC Organization to Fight Racism. We started that at that time uh, when the racism was in your face kind of racism, not subtle, uh, mm-hmm. and that still continues. Um, you know, like, uh, it, it's, you know, like Canada is such a wonderful, beautiful country, and, you know, we are so proud of it. And uh, we can together do a lot more, and especially during these difficult, challenging times. Raj, what do you think we can do? What, what can an everyday citizen do to help push back and fight against the racism that uh, is bubbling under the surface uh, with recent sort of dog whistles and what have you? Yeah, you know, this uh, Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, Lives Matter, that whole movement, uh, you know, really put this whole thing in, in the forefront. Yeah. We, um, uh, you know, majority of Canadians, I would say solid majority, 95% or more, are very open-minded people who understand what it is. But what happens is sometimes when uh, some discriminatory racist incidents happen, people don't say anything, don't do anything. They just watch and say they, they, they feel bad about it. What we have to do as individuals, we have to take responsibility. We have to take a uh, stand. So you see something, you have to speak up. Uh, you know, it's um, collectively that if we start doing it, we can do a lot more. I go to uh, different schools, uh, high schools, elementary schools, to speak with the students and talk about discrimination, racism, human rights, and all that. I encourage them, you know, like, say, you know, you can't be silent. You know, being silent is the biggest irresponsible act one can, you know, uh, commit. We have to stand up. We have to uh, talk about it. That doesn't mean that we have to shout, you know, all kind of slogans and all, you know, uh, be uh, extremist, but in a very responsible way, uh, speak up and oppose what you see. It's not uh, correct. So that's what we have to do. Many people I have seen. Yeah, many people I have seen calling into, uh, you know, radio programs or writing letters to their local newspapers. All those things help. So, but you know, we we have to really keep talking and uh, we have to maintain that open-mindedness and have a dialogue. So appreciative of your time today, and it, it really is a call to action that everybody can consume, all ages, all walks. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we the time of being a bystander has passed. Thank you so much for your time today, uh, Raj. I appreciate welcome. it. Thank you for having me. And breaking this morning, the BC Teachers Federation putting out a release to lay out what they're looking for from the government. Here's BCTF President Terry Mooring from Mornings with Simi today. 
what we've said all along is that uh, schools will take this plan, this framework that was developed by the province. They will keep health and safety in mind when they're developing student schedules. We know we know across the province it will look different uh, according to you know the the community's needs, and that uh, appears to be what Surrey has done. We know that Surrey is quite a dense school uh, school district with very very large high schools. So, in order to be able to operate those schools safely and have kids in as much as possible, they've come up with a really creative solution. It was a very busy morning with Simi today. That was Stephanie Higginson speaking about the back-to-school plans that will be submitted uh, by Friday. Uh, This is the BCTF's President Terry Mooring uh, on this morning's release release, and expectations from government. So we're calling for some additional preventative measures to be um, in classrooms. So what we're looking for are the things that we know work, um, which are physical distancing um, and and wearing masks for students that are 10 years old and and older. Um, Right now, what the province announced on Monday was that masks need to be worn in hallways, on buses, but not in classrooms where teachers and students spend a significant amount of time. So neither of those measures are in place inside classrooms. Okay, so you would like to see a mandatory mask mandate then from the provincial government? We would, um, when physical distancing isn't possible. And so, you know, the first line of defense in order to prevent the spread of the virus we know is physical distancing. And so we would like to see classroom density reduced so that can happen. We also think it's important that there be an option for remote learning, especially for medically complex children or children who have are in a family with a close family member that um, is medically compromised. Um, we think that there needs to be a plan where they're able to still engage remotely, where they remain connected to their school, and get the fr- full range of supports and services connected to that school. And so we see that a need for that to be a pr- provincial guidelines around it, so that is consistent from district to district, so regardless of where a child is in the province, and if they have a you know, a medical conditioner or um, a close family mm-hmm. member that does, that they're able to ha- um, have that remote option. Okay, so that is BCTF President Terry Mooring. She's going to be on the show with us on Friday for two segments to talk through the plans that are being submitted. First in with the plans, ahead of the curve, if you will, is the Surrey School District. Uh, submitted their plans, and now we have an opportunity to talk those through. Thrilled to have the Surrey Teachers Association President, Matt Westfall, joining us on the line. Hi, Matt. Hello, Jody. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you. And and the the uh, clips that we played were a little bit out of order there because the, uh, Stephanie Higginson, the president of the BC School Trustees Association, praising the Surrey plan. Um, can you let our listeners uh, sort of get the Coles notes on on what that plan entails? Okay. So the basic plan is to have students in school every day of the week, but it, there's different approaches depending on whether they're grades eight and nine or ten to twelve. For the grade eights okay. and nines, all, all of them would have two courses at a time. So only two courses that would run for 10 weeks. Now, if you're in grade eight or nine, you would have two classes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Each of them could be up to 30. For grade 10 to 12, you would still have a morning class that's up to 30. But then your afternoon class, which it mixes students from other cohorts, is taught hybrid. So your one-day week in person with only, only up to 10 students, and the rest of the week you're working remotely in that class. And that's, a, that, and that's a way to try to offer a wider range of courses for students who are headed towards graduation. 
That has been the big question for so many of us that have high schoolers or soon to be high schoolers in the case of my son who has no idea what he's in for. So it, it's that, that feeling of like, well, what about the electives? What if you're looking to go down more of a science path or you're looking into being a more of an art uh, rooted uh, student in your latter years in high school? So this is, this is set up to address that. That's right, because we know that it's really important for students to have access to a wide range of, of courses, depending on their passions, their interests, what their career goals are. So, it, so that's one positive thing about the plan, is that it is designed to still allow that, but there's still some serious concerns about it too. Well, there's no doubt there are going to be serious concerns going into any classroom scenario during a pandemic. It's really hard for all of us, teachers, parents, kids, even just the general public watching it all unfold uh, on a glo- in a global sense. There's no one right way or right answer here. Uh, but it certainly appears that the Surrey uh, School District is, is very much looking to uh, err on the side of caution when it come to co- comes to cohorts, right? Because you're talking about up to 30... Uh, students in each of the cohorts in those two courses, if I understand correctly, in eight and nine, and then expands it just a little bit for 10 to 12. But there is that remote learning piece that that sort of eases the numbers, if you will, in class. We think it's a positive thing that the district is going lower than the cohorts of 120 that the province would allow. So it'd be 30 for 10 to 12, 60 for eight to nine. But the big problem is that you're still going to have most classrooms with groups of 30 people end up with no physical distancing, no requirement for masks, and that's where the big safety concern remains. That's not Surrey's fault. That's a flaw in the provincial plan. Right, which is what Terry Mooring, uh, the BCTF uh, president, put out in her release today, asking for those additional preventative measures, right? That's right. Because... I mean, if you think about it, having 30 young adults with a couple of other adults in such a small space with often not very good ventilation, maybe no window that opens, and that wouldn't be considered safe anywhere outside of a school. And we don't really think it's safe inside of a school. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but in the, the I've spoken with a number of teachers from Surrey and, and those who have uh, sort of made themselves familiar with the district and certainly our uh, CKNW senior reporter Janet Brown has spoken of the fact that Surrey has an, seems to have an inordinate number of portables. We certainly do. Portables are not an optimal work environment for anyone. So, and for elementaries, part of the space is taken up by storage and hooks. And it's, it's really not possible to physically distance in almost any classroom. Uh, and, and that's the real concern. So people are feeling, we, we did a survey of our members, and 40% said they're highly anxious about going back. 40% said they're anxious. And that's because they know the reality of schools, how crowded Surrey schools are, that they're, they're going to have classes approaching 30 in many cases. And they don't, they don't have confidence that under this plan it can be safe for them or for wow, the students. of teachers are anxious about a return to school. That is a big number. Yes, uh, and that should be concerning to everyone. That's not the state of mind you want anyone having heading into a really challenging school year with so many unknowns. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith and uh, chatting with the president of Surrey's Teachers Association, Matt Westfall, on the line and taking your calls if you have questions about back-to-school plans in Surrey, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a free call on your cell phone. And Matt, you know, we, we do get a lot of uh, back and forth, whether it's on my email, jody at cknw.com, or when we open up the phone lines, oftentimes we do get calls from teachers in Surrey. It is such a busy, 
growing portion of our province. Uh, what motivated uh, the Surrey School District, do you think, to get the plan out ahead of the Friday deadline? Uh, well, one thing that the district did is they invited us to participate as the local union in discussing it. Uh, and they recognized that we weren't going to agree with everything in it, but that was, there's a chance for teachers to provide some input. So I think, they, I think the district recognized that the sooner they can get information out, the better. And because secondary is changing the most dramatically, that's why they wanted to let parents know about that. And then elementary, they'll be announcing uh, next week, I believe. Okay, so we'll look forward to the uh, elementary school announcement because on the broader sense, what the province is sort of putting down for elementary and high school, there was some significant shock off the top at that announcement when uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry said, everybody back in school, all all classes, all ages, full time. Uh, And the pushback, the immediate pushback from the BC Teachers Federation going, well, that's not at all what we thought was going to happen. We thought there was going to be a hybrid uh, for Uh, high school because while uh, younger children are lower risk uh, with transmission and and, um, the effects of this virus, uh, not so over the age of 12 or 13. Like when you get into the older age groups, the science shows from everybody that, you know, I'm not an epidemiologist, nor are you, but we are listening very closely to what Dr. Henry and others are saying. And when we look at our teens, when we look at high schools, trying to keep teenagers away from one another is is a is a heady task on any given day never mind in a pandemic it absolutely is and that, that's why we were we were also shocked that the government came out with such an aggressive plan just having everyone back at school and even for elementary because there's evidence that from age 10 and up you can transmit as readily as an adult so that goes down to grade four so yeah. there's, it's not like there aren't concerns with elementary too but even just thinking on a practical level say it's lunchtime there's still hundreds of students milling around and you see students sitting close together, how do I know if they're in the same cohort and they're allowed to do that, even though we don't think they should, or whether they're not? It's going to be almost impossible to police. And there have been so many other pieces of this. I mean, we have to put our trust in science. We definitely have to acknowledge the unintended negative consequences of keeping kids home and bubble wrapped in this time of a pandemic. We don't know how long this is going to go on for, and we don't know how far behind some kids will fall. But certainly there are like a number of things that, with your expertise, Matt, I'd like to unpack with you because I sincerely do not know the answers uh, to these situations. But what in your experience might be something that could help here like those who uh kids who are struggling with learning uh learning issues that might have uh, a one-on-one teacher in class how would that work if that child is now um put in a position where they're learning remotely or in a hybrid situation that connection that personal connection is so key or perhaps they with that designation they lose that support staff worker Well, absolutely. Any plan has to make sure that the needs of all students are taken into account. So even before when we had the shutdown and the partial reopening, there was ways for students who need it, who really were not doing all that well at home and who needed the more intensive support to be able to come in and get it. So we think that has to be part of any model that happens, even though we would prefer right now to reduce the density, have only half the students back. But there would have to be exceptions, I think both for essential service workers, children, but also for children who do really absolutely need that greater care, provided that can be done safely. In Surrey, would it, would it make teachers less anxious to have all kids in class wearing masks? I think, I think it would. Uh, in our survey, the, the great majority of teachers did want to see mandatory masks for students. 
So, but masks are lower on the hierarchy of protection than physical distancing. So that, that's yes. really even more important. But because right now the mandate doesn't even require it within a classroom, even though we know that it's not possible to physically distance in a classroom unless you greatly reduce the size, number of students who are in there. So that keeps coming up. And you know what? Class size has been a, a talking point between the provincial government and the teachers f- f- for all of my parental life. Uh, and even before that, because my dad was a teacher. Uh, how can class size be managed uh, urgently, in your opinion? Can it be? Yes, it can. Uh, we think that if, if the government had chosen to open in their stage three instead of two, which has 50% density and smaller groups, no more than 50% together, that, may, that doesn't necessarily allow two meters, but it's a lot closer to it. And that would be something which would be managed, manageable. And that basically points towards a hybrid model, part remote, part in person. That, that is the way the, the plan itself has a way of managing that. We just think the province has missed the mark, especially given the infection numbers that are happening and going for a hundred, having 100% of students back every day. We're with Matt Westfall, the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. When you talk about remote learning, one of the things that BCTF president Terry Mooring said this morning uh, when she was chatting with Simi was that students be connected remotely to their school. Does that put more pressure and more work on the teachers who are teaching in class as well as remotely? Or is the suggestion that kids would just remotely tie in uh, to the class that is currently underway for the kids that are on their in-class day? How do you see that working? We think that if, if there's students who can't attend for health reasons, for example, there needs to be specific staffing for the teachers who are assigned to support those students, which we already have for students who are hospitalized or can't come to school, rather than just counting on the classroom teacher to deal with their class, students who come regularly and then also have a whole separate program for a child who's not coming at all. That was, that's what happened in June, and that was what was not sustainable, having to deliver two different programs at the same time. Right. I saw that stress firsthand. I, uh, my yeah. son's grade seven teacher was not very savvy with online, but probably, if you ask my son, it was his favorite teacher uh, so far. Uh, loved being in class. And interestingly enough, in that return in June, where so many people said there was so much attention and fear about going back, uh, some classrooms in my son's public elementary school had only three kids in it, and his grade seven class had 26 kids return in June because they all wanted to be there. They wanted to be there and they were able to spread out because some of the other classrooms only had three. So they were able to work with physical distancing. So I got short on time and long on questions, Matt. I'm just rifling through here, but is there an option for perhaps setting up some semi-permanent outdoor learning facilities in Surrey? Uh, That's something which is looking at, and a lot of teachers, we we already have one school which is dedicated to outdoor learning, but we have 75,000 students. So, But a lot of teachers are looking to, okay, if I want to integrate outdoor activities, so maybe maybe not all day, but part of the day, how do I do that? And we have some excellent teachers who are working on that and who are sharing their knowledge about how to do that. And I know there's interest all over the province in that, which I think is a good thing, pandemic or not. It would be great for more kids to be involved in outdoor learning. Yeah, and we need to start wrapping our heads around on these new builds, these seismic upgrades that don't include covered outdoor space. If ever we can recognize the need for that, now is the time. Matt, as always, thank you very much for your time. Really do appreciate your perspective and your clarity on this. Thank you very much for having me. 
Jody Vanson for Mike Smith. It is time for Baldry's Beat, the return of Keith Baldry. He is back, and boy, do we have lots to cover. Uh, how are you doing today, Keith? Pretty good, Jody. That was a great interview you had with Raj Shohan, who I've known for many years since he was a, a, an organizer in the fields. of. Uh, I remember actually going out with him to the fields in Surrey and organizing some blueberry pickers back then. It was just fascinating to speak with him. So mm-hmm. a great idea on your part. <laughs> Sending us a, a good idea there for content, uh, a la Keith Baldry. And before we dive into uh, Baldry's beat in earnest, I want to reference uh, with you what Gord just uh, spoke about in our newscast, the passing of a journalistic legend. Yeah, Alan Fotheringham. I mean, you don't get much bigger than that. Even though, of course, he's been quiet for a number of years. Uh, at his peak, he was a dominant voice in uh, in Canadian journalism. Uh, I remember racing home as a young kid, uh, eagerly devouring the Vancouver Sun because I wanted to read three people: Alan Fotheringham, Jim Taylor, and uh, Jack Wasserman, um, who were just mm-hmm. uh, again just so influential columnists. Great writer, great turn of phrase. There's a great obit by him by my friend Tom Hawthorne and McLean's. Uh, just posted. I invite people to uh, to uh, read that. I w- never worked with Alan Fotheringham. I uh, only met him a few times. I did work with two of his p- two people really closely associated with him, though Jack Webster and Marjorie Nichols. Uh, Jack, of course, from BCTV, and before that, CJR and Marjorie, the Vancouver Sun. And uh, again, those you don't see those larger than life figures anymore in journalism. No, and I like you. My memory is uh, earliest of memories with McLean's magazine. To be completely honest, is and always turning to the back page first. Yeah, and that's uh, that was that became the the saying of how you read McLean's. You read from the back back page first, and I think that was the title of one yeah. of Fotheringham's books. So it's uh, his column was a must read uh, at the Vancouver Sun and also McLean's. I mean his. His coverage of Vancouver City Hall in the 60s and early 70s is just legendary. You just don't see that anymore. And his, his characterization of politicians and, <laughs> and key political figures in terms of put-downs was just unparalleled. Yeah, next level. All right, let's get to COVID-19. We didn't have the opportunity to connect yesterday after those uh, numbers were released on Monday afternoon. Uh, the big numbers you predicted within... You know, just a, a, a handful. You had it sort of nailed. So let's let's unpack that here. Yeah. So we're now at a we're we're testing more. Uh, although we weren't testing as much yesterday, but we were testing more. So we we're going to find more cases. That was inevitable. Also, the age cohort that's that's contracting the virus at greatest numbers is the twenty to twenty nine, and secondly, the thirty to thirty nine. And those are the people that we know have more contacts in terms of personal contacts. They're more socially active, so they they are going to be around people uh, in ways that other ages aren't, and that's that's a big reason why I think we're seeing the the spike in in cases. But you know, I had a long talk with Health Minister Adrian Dix yesterday about about this, and it, you know, it's concerning when you see eighty, ninety, a hundred cases uh, picked up mm. in in one night. But on the other hand, this is the glass half full, half empty argument. Our hospitalization numbers are incredibly low compared to other jurisdictions. Our ICU numbers are incredibly low. Our death rate is incredibly low. Alberta, right next door, uh, is seeing an ongoing resurgence not only of um, of cases but also hospitalizations. And hospitalizations are a key indicator of how serious the situation is when someone has the virus. I mean, most people are have very mild symptoms, but there can be people who are completely overwhelmed by this, and they are the ones who are sent to hospital, if not the intensive care unit, and ultimately face uh, fatalities. Um, so it's uh, it's encouraging to see when you when you look at one set of numbers, and it's discouraging when you look at another set of numbers. 
Yeah, the the glass half empty piece from my perspective is at least in just talking it through is the community outbreak piece. It's when we don't know where this virus is and then it can flare up in a way that is more difficult to tamp down. It puts our yeah. contact tracers at, you know, working double time, extra time, overtime. Going to those testing numbers that you were referencing there and looking at last Thursday's modeling. I mean, that was the big slide for me was the the modeling uh, that or the the graph that had our new test case positive sort of superimposed on the number of tests behind it and how the testing has increased so significantly, which brought me back to the serology uh, study at UBC where we were told, and, and you and I have talked about this in the past, we were told that there's likely eight times as much mm-hmm. uh, COVID-19 or eight times as many test case positives on a daily basis that we just don't know about yet because testing isn't high enough. Uh, that's just reflective in the in that serology uh, test. But there's, so there's a little bit of both. Like the cup half empty is like we do have a significant number of young people sort of just spreading this around where we could have that buttoned down. And yet, you know, we don't have those overwhelmed hospital numbers well, uh, on top of it. And hopefully we don't, we, we don't have those numbers yet. There is a lag time, right. yeah. known, of course, between positive tests and potential hospitalizations. So the next two weeks or uh, the next week or so is going to be critical because the numbers started to spike in earnest last week, a week ago today, uh, when we started hitting, you know, we went from 50 and suddenly jumped to more than 70, 80, 90, 100 on Friday. Uh, we'll see if any of those people are ultimately hospitalized. But if, again, the evidence is that young people who get this, by and large, don't get it too seriously. Having said that, we did have the case of Victor, um, I think his last name is Lee, who was first on Linda Steele's show and then was on yeah. Global. A 26-year-old personal uh, fitness trainer uh, was in a, uh, suddenly, without warning, suddenly had to be put in a medically induced coma when he got COVID-19. So this virus can really hit young people very hard, but those are mostly random cases rather than the average case. But we'll see if the hospitalization numbers increase uh, in, the, in the, the coming two weeks. The other number that's are starting to get notice, uh, and I've got a piece out of, about it this week, is the isolation, people in isolation. We've gone mm-hmm. from less than 1,000 people in isolation a little more than a week ago to now approaching 2,300. And we haven't seen the numbers today. But, uh, you know, to go from, you know, less than 1,000 to 2,300 people literally being taken out of society, out of, out of their jobs, out of their contact with friends, out of their their uh, their relationship with society and their community, is um, is extraordinary, and that number will continue to grow as long as we continue to post eighty cases a day. Any insight uh, from Minister Dix or anybody uh, at the ledge in terms of potential stronger, uh, tougher enforcement of those indoor uh, Airbnb penthouse parties or nightclub parties or what have you? Uh, Minister Dix very clear uh, yesterday on Mornings with Simi that it's very hard uh, to, to police um, outdoor events like drum circles and and what have you, because well, there's just not as much risk at those. Um, but the indoor parties, are we going to see some? Are we going to see some pushback and enforcement there? Yes, we are. Uh, so, Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, uh, because we're in a state of emergency, has significant powers under the Provinces Emergency Act. Uh, literally, I mean, he can really do whatever he wants. And you're right to distinguish between the outdoor um, gatherings and the indoor gatherings. Doctor, uh, the assistant, def- the deputy uh, provincial health officer, Doctor Gustafson, at the briefing on Monday, 
as Dr. Bonnie Henry takes her richly deserved week off, uh, made the point that there is yet to be any ev- much evidence of any widespread transmission of the disease from outdoor events. So the concern is indoor events. And look for Mike Farnworth yeah. to announce either tomorrow or Friday uh, a number of penalties uh, that uh, he can invoke under the Emergency Act for those caught violating public gathering rules in indoor uh, settings, which will, I think will include banquet halls, really any, any pub or restaurant or nightclub, banquet halls as well, common rooms in hotels and condominium uh, strata units. Stratus, We've got yeah. a common room. Uh, they are going to be policed, and they will be. There will be fines, and there will be bylaw officers who are going to be briefed about this, about what the powers they will have under this uh, extraordinary situation, where the Emergency Act can really um, bring the hammer down. So, uh, those penalties, I think, are going to be flagged for everyone. Whether they're enforced or how they're enforced remains to be seen. But I think everyone's going to be put on notice that thumbing your nose at rules when it comes to public health are going to you're going to going to carry a significant financial penalty. Jody Vance in for Mike Smith this week. Glad to have you along for Baldry's Beat. Of course, Keith Baldry is back. Oh, tongue twisters. Keith Baldry is back, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief after a one-day one hiatus. One day. One day. <laughs> we, just, we missed you terribly. We, we, McLean K uh, stood in those big shoes and did a fantastic job, but uh, we couldn't have you because you were on a ferry. Yes, I was on a so. ferry over to the mainland for something and, and came back. An interesting ferry experience. It was uh, a lot of people wearing masks. Uh, very few people aboard the ferries. Um, mm. But uh, so, it, you know, they've got uh, that, that situation, I think, from my perspective, uh, under better control than it was perhaps a month ago. There you go. Well, we're hearing of uh, two sailing weights uh, to and from Gulf Islands right now on, you know, yeah, well, what, whatever your Wednesday, the Wednesday afternoon. It's cut by yeah, 50% exactly. because of transfer camera yeah. rules. So there's just fewer people allowed on the ferry, so there's going to be sailing weights. Yeah, people just need to uh, factor that in mm-hmm. when they're trying to get ahead of themselves into the weekends and what have you. Let's get to our callers. The phone board is lining up, 604-280-9898, star 9898 is a toll-free call on your cell. We start with Michael in Surrey. Welcome to the show, Michael. Well, thank you very much. Can I say real quick that I really appreciate the work that NW and Global have been doing, covering this from beginning to present. It has been amazing. But whether I've missed it or it hasn't been discussed, I have two quick points. One is the term term recovery. Mm -hmm. I got chicken pox when I was a kid. Most of us did. And we got it during the school year. And we went back because we had recovered. I'm curious about the fact that now I had to spend a lot of money getting a shingles vaccine because I had chickenpox. Do we really, are we really using the term recovery because we know it's absolute? My second point is vaccinations. I'm starting to hear a little bit about the flu vaccine. There's going to be lots, but we don't know the effect of having both the flu and COVID, especially among kids. Because once again, when I was six, seven years old, we missed a lot of school back in those days because we were sick. So those are my concerns. Vaccinations, I think they should be mandatory for the flu to, to help out. And the whole term of recovery. Do we really know that once you've had COVID, that it ain't coming back, it ain't going to impact you in any other way? Yeah, two, two excellent points, and both uh, have come up uh, in our questions with Dr. Bonnie Henry. So uh, in terms of recovery, it, we have asked for some information on are people truly recovered 100% because there are, of course, many stories out there, many instances of people 
who are officially recovered from COVID-19, but have lingering health care issues, whether it's scarred lung tissue, whether it's uh, a continued shortness of breath, reduced lung capacity. Uh, so there, there, is, uh, there is evidence of that. So you're absolutely right to question that. Um, and we have been pressing for some, some data to back up uh, just how many people are truly 100% recovered and how many people have lingering health uh, issues. Hopefully that, that information emerges. In terms of a flu vaccine, the recommendation from public health is to get a flu vac vaccination shot this fall. Even though you're right, uh, we don't know what the impact is going to be versus uh, COVID-19. But all things being equal from the medical experts, they still maintain it's, it's better to get a flu shot than not get a flu shot. I'm totally team flu shot. And interesting from what Michael was saying there, Keith, uh, he had the chicken pox, had, to get, had shingles and had to get a shingles vaccine. I never had the chicken pox. I got shingles and I got the shingles vaccine. So, yeah, yeah. You know, and again, it, when, when a vaccine comes out, get vaccinated. Um, unfortunately, right. there's a disturbing rising course of anti-vaccination sentiment out there. And that is so wrongheaded. Uh, it's dangerous. It is dangerous. Let's go to our next caller. Uh, Jay in Maple Ridge, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Uh, and you? Okay, good. So my, what my thinking is, if somebody goes to a party and say they have COVID and they're irresponsible and they cause other people to get it and somebody dies, would they not, could not be charged with manslaughter? Well, <laughs> I think... Um, I think the evidence, the the case history on this is unlikely, unless someone uh, knowingly infects someone, willfully infects people, with it is uh, with the aim of of uh, hurting them. I think they could, could face criminal uh, prosecution. We have seen that with other diseases over history. If someone knowingly and willfully tries to hurt someone through the spreading of a a known disease, that can result in some criminality. But whether it's manslaughter yeah. or it's something else, I'm not sure. But again, I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. I don't. I've seen no evidence of someone willfully trying to spread this disease. The problem with the parties is people are going into a party environment in a closed room with a lot of people they don't know necessarily. Mm -hmm. They don't know the history of where those people have been. And someone, by and large, inadvertently brings the virus into this environment. And the, one of the problems here is COVID-19 presents itself sometimes as a somewhat benign uh, illness where you literally just have a runny nose and a bit of a headache. And most people associate that with just, well, I've got a runny nose and a bit of a headache and nothing else to it. But that could actually represent, uh, be symptoms of COVID-19. And that's the issue with parties is people are going into this environment, uh, these environments with, uh, with the virus, and they may not even know they have it. And they inadvertently uh, spread it. So, Jay, I don't, I don't think a lot of people are doing this or any people are doing this willfully. Uh, and that's why I don't think you're going to see the, the criminal justice system be part of this. It's interesting, Keith, when you say that about the mild headache and a runny nose. I mean, some people would say, oh, yeah, my allergies are acting up and they wouldn't stay home. We really need that diligence in staying home when we have any kinds of symptoms. And then also having that layer of protection for others in wearing a mask in places and spaces that social and physical distancing every, is every not day possible. I, I go into my legislature office. There's very few people there, but there's a sign on the door. Do you have any of these symptoms? And one of them is mm -hmm. hay fever and a runny nose. If you do, don't come in. Interesting. Good to note. Uh, we've only got a minute to go here, but I want to ask, do you any idea of what those penalties might be coming in from Farnworth? 
Mr. Farnworth? I've heard no dollar numbers. I assume we're talking, we're not talking $50 fines. I assume we're talking, you know, more significant hundreds of dollars. And again, it's going to be operators, the operators of these venues, probably more than the participants. But uh, strata owners, resort owners, banquet hall owners, you've got to be on your guard because, and uh, you're, you're going to get a pretty stiff warning later this week of the ramifications if you break the rules. Well, there you have it. We will be tuned in on that and certainly unpacking it with you because you're not allowed to take any more days no, off. I'll be, I'll be back tomorrow I'm in- <laughs> Thank you, Keith. Okay. I'm in for a mic all week, so I want to have my Baldry's beat. I got to get my fix and get educated and updated as our first caller had said. Such great coverage from the one and only Keith Baldry. You got to follow him on Twitter at Keith Baldry, our Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief found each and every weekday here on the Mike Smith Show for Jody Vance in for Mike this week, and I want to talk about real estate. I found this story in the Vancouver Sun that sort of flew under my radar, just was kind of floating by. I thought, geez, what's this exactly? Our rental housing here in BC, buildings, rental buildings, is being bought up as an investment for, you know, pension funds and real estate investment trusts and the like. Uh, Folks in Toronto, big business in Toronto, buying up BC rental housing. Uh, it's apparently a great investment. There was a little bit of a lull right around the the shutdown around COVID-19, and then it exploded again. And you know what? When we look at the real estate market as a whole, you may have noticed a whole bunch of for sale signs went up, and all of a sudden, there's a bunch of sold signs being slapped everywhere to take the pulse on what's happening. We bring in real estate analyst and vancitycondoguide.com. Steve Soretsky is with us. Hi, Steve. Hey, thanks for having me on. Is it my imagination or are things uh, heating up once again to uh, a a really solid level here in this uh, BC market? Um, yeah, I think for the most part, I mean, you know, particularly given the economic outlook, I think it's a pretty, pretty strong market, but it's, it really, again, depends kind of what you're looking at. Um, every product is performing a little bit differently. Uh, I think as I was on the show, I don't know, maybe a week or two ago, as I mentioned, it's like, you know, if you look at, um, you know, from the residential side, uh, not necessarily the multifamily side, if you look at the residential side, you know, like downtown condo sales in July were down 18% year over year and then single family houses in the suburbs are up 56% year over year. So um, you can clearly see where there's some, some trends happening and where there's consumer preferences uh, have shifted as well. That's a really good point because the last time you and I spoke, which feels like about a year ago, but was only a couple of months ago, was we were looking at how those very high end properties were absolutely stagnant and that condos were the thing and, and Mm -hmm. people were, were back looking for that, that, sort of good space and the broad space and then how much has from the condo perspective perspective how much has that uh, strata insurance piece played into uh the market uh specifically to condos i mean i think it's made people a little bit more cautious obviously budgeting a little bit more for monthly strata fee increases um so i think it's re- reflecting in the price uh, a little bit for sure uh, but again, I think, you know, it's hard to square of how much is, is from the insurance, how much is it from consumer preferences. Uh, obviously, I think that the investor base right now is, is not that active. Um, people that would normally would buy condos to rent out, um, given there's obviously some, some weakness in the rental market right now. And in terms of when you say weakness in the rental market, that means good things for those looking for rent places to rent. Yeah, I mean, I think if you talk to any tenant, they'll or potential tenant, they'll, they'll probably tell you the same thing is they have a lot more options today than they did six months, 12 months, you know, uh, 18 months ago. Um, we're seeing obviously a huge uh, decline or a huge uh, pullback in the number of 
of people coming here, obviously with borders being closed, uh, foreign students, uh, that sort of thing. So that's, you know, it's a bit of a drag on the sort of population growth that's been so robust over the last few years. So that's kind of pulled back. And uh, we're seeing, obviously, you know, when people lose their jobs and, and the economy gets tight, um, people move back home. And so you're seeing household formation slow as well. So I think all those kind of things right now are impacting uh, the rental market. So when something goes on the market, let's say mid-range, moderate, one of those, or maybe one of the 56% increase spaces in the suburbs, because people are really finding that maybe work from home, I don't have to live downtown and pay the premium, or maybe my yard is that much more important to me uh, than my proximity to work. If somebody were looking for a place that is sort of in more of that hot market um, uh, item or category... Are we back in a bidding war situation? Are we are we at ask? Are we below ask? Where generally are we when it comes to uh, the buyer? I would say a lot of the single family stuff um, in that sort of entry level mid range. Um, you know, anything where a local might be able to kind of get into. Um, you're seeing a lot of that go into multiple offers. Um, there's just really not a whole lot of inventory. I mean. You know, right. obviously the demand has picked up. There's been a consumer shift and a, and a trend towards having more space and being further away from, um, you know, the office because you don't have to go to the office anymore. Um, so we're seeing that. So the demand has picked up. But I think the, the big story really is just like the drop off in inventory. So that's kind of what's creating a lot of the um, the multiple offer situations. It's a little bit different than like 2016 where you had just a massive influx. Everybody wanted real estate. You know, we obviously had a lot of foreign investment at that time. That was kind of the huge drivers. But uh, today it feels a lot like there's just a lot less listings coming onto the market. And that's Mm -hmm. creating this kind of supply crunch and and multiple offers in that space. As a real estate analyst, uh, Steve, what would your advice be to somebody who was maybe looking at the mortgage rates and thinking, you know what, it's free money right now. I got to get into this. What what advice would you give uh, that first time home buyer? Um, I mean, I feel I, so, yeah, my view on that is obviously, yeah, like rates are, are you know, you mean you get a five year fix today at 1.8%, um, you know, inflation, I mean, not right now, but if it's running at inflation is normally running at say 2%, it's technically a negative real interest rate. So they're basically, yeah, essentially they are giving you money. Um, so I think from a long-term perspective, obviously that's, uh, it's a good way to, to kind of build some equity in the market, but at the same time, I still think there's, so there is some need for caution. I mean, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough economic environment. I suspect it probably will be uh, for the you know, short-term foreseeable future here. So, you know, just not over-leveraging yourself, you know, giving yourself a bit of a buffer in case, uh, you know, bad things do happen. But at, this, at the end of the day, you know, you got to live somewhere. So, Yeah, proceed with caution. But yet exactly. proceed is, is how, I'm, how I'm reading you. If you need a place to live, you need a place to live. Now is a good time to buy, but buy within your means. Yes, 100%, exactly. There we go. Great advice as always, Steve. Thank you for doing this. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me on.